And that may be a sm- small act, depending on what, what it is, what your goals are. Maybe as, as small as sending out a tweet or a posting on Facebook or, you know, writing 500 words in the book you're working on. It may be as big as running for president, you know, and everything in between. But every one of us can use this, and it will bring great joy and uh, satisfaction to us when we do. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, How can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is John Perkins. His best-known book is Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which spent 70 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. I think it's been translated into more than 35 languages. John's latest book is Touching the Jaguar, Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life and the World. John is somebody that I've traveled to Ecuador with, spent time in the Amazon rainforest. I think he's a very interesting guy. He's a shaman, as we talk about in this interview, and he has a background in economics. He's one of those people that in some ways couldn't have a more diverse background, differing set of experiences that he manages to bring together in his writing and in his shamanic work. John has been featured on ABC, NBC, CNN, NPR, the History Channel, Time, New York Times, Washington Post, pretty much every major publication. It's because his work is sometimes controversial, but I think always interesting. In this interview, we talk about a couple of terms that John introduced me to, the life economy, the death economy, what each is. We talk about the shamanic work that John does, so much of which is around shifting perception, something that can be extraordinarily helpful when it comes time to confront our fears or whatever stands in the way of us being the people we want to be and living the lives we want to live. John is someone who has worked with shamans on six continents. I asked him to share with me what it was like to apprentice with a shaman in the rainforest back in the late 60s, what he's learned since then. I also asked John to share with me his experiences with ayahuasca, what he's learned from it, and what we can learn from it. I also asked John if he will share his view on how each of us can make a meaningful difference in this world. In the last part of this interview, where we explore writing and the creative process, we get into the fact that John's book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, was rejected by 39 publishers and how he persisted in the face of that to go on to publish a book that eventually sold more than 2 million copies. John is also a co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance, and he is founder of an organization called Dream Change. These organizations are devoted to establishing a future for the world 
that generations will want to inherit. I find John to be a very interesting person. He's very kind and he's someone who I respect because I think he's very congruent to what he's writing about, what he's talking about. John is someone who is concerned about the quality of life on earth, the future of life on earth, and he's doing something about it. He's using his talents. He's using his skills. He's using his resources to make a difference. And if nothing else, I think the example that he is of what someone can do when they become committed, when they become aligned, you know, when they become clear about who they are and why they're here, you know, that's a big part of why I wanted to talk with him in this interview. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with my friend, John Perkins. John, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be with you. And it's really a, a great pleasure. Yes. I think the last time we were together was in a the Amazon, or at least in Quito, in Ecuador. Yeah, that was a while back. Yeah. John, let me start with, with my favorite question for Uber drivers, <laughs> which is, what's life about? Well, I think that that's a question of the ages. <laughs> Philosophers have tried to answer that one since waiting for Socrates. And I, I think, you know, the real answer is it's different for every individual. For me personally, it's about really doing what I most enjoy doing in life, uh, satisfying what I, what I want to, if I want to, if I'm lying on that proverbial deathbed, what am I looking back at and, and being most satisfied with what I did? And that's writing. I love to write, enjoy writing. But it's also, I like to write things that help other people. And right now, it's about transforming failing systems into successful ones. And that's what my writing has been about for a long time. I've written 10 books that basically go into that from different angles. And so it's, it's twofold for me. It's about doing what I really most enjoy in my life and then doing it in a way that serves others also and, and serves future generations. And I have to say that I think... For most everybody that I've known and met and from all walks of life and, and all different cultures, uh, doing something that, that pleases you deeply, that you will look back at and be grateful that you did, but and at the same time, serving others is very important. You take great pleasure always by, by helping others, whether it's just one other person, a family member, or it's our town or city or our country or the whole world. But reaching out, making making it bigger than just being about just you yourself. Yeah. No, that's I think that's a really beautiful answer. And as you mentioned, you go about this through your writing, your latest book, Touching the Jaguar, Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life in the World. Will you tell me who did you write this book for and what did you want it to do for them? Well, I wrote it for a pretty large audience, which includes two different aspects. So before this book, I'd written five books on indigenous cultures and, and shamanism and so forth. Books like The, the World is As You Dream at Shape-Shifting Psychonavigation, there's five in total. And I'd written four books on uh, global economics and, and intrigue, uh, the most famous being uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and, and then three others, Hoodwinked and The Secret History of the American Empire. And it was interesting because as a result, I was invited to speak in many different countries at many different forums. But there were really two different genres. One was the kind of the new age, the shamanic people interested in indigenous cultures. And they used to ask me, people would say, say, say I, I, you, you, you can't possibly be the same guy that wrote that book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, can you? 
And then, but I'd also be invited to speak at economic forums and big business seminars and so forth. And, and I'd be asked there sometimes, well, you didn't write those books on shamanism, did you? And so there were these two fairly large populations around the world. And, and then there were, there were the colleges and high schools that I spoke at. at, at usually that was about the, the business aspect, but not always. And to me, there was always a very strong connection between these two genres. They're, they're driven by the same thing that drives all human activity, which is how our perceptions mold our reality. There was always that connection, but it was never explicit. So Touching the Jaguar, I wrote specifically to create that bridge between the two genres, to show how they're connected. And I write in stories. It's all nonfiction. It's what's called narrative nonfiction. I think storytelling is is the key to, to good writing and good reading. People really enjoy reading stories. That's, that's not to negate essays and so forth, which I also do write, but I think stories are very powerful means of getting a message across. So the book is written as stories, but also with a lot of guidance, and, and in the end, people come away with the process that each of us can use to transform our fears and to make our lives better and make the world better, which is part of the subtitle. So the, the book is really written for a very large audience. It includes those two genres, and many others. And and I have to add, Brian, I, I'm sorry to keep going on here, but when I wrote the book, obviously, I had no idea that we'd all be facing a global pandemic when the book came out. But it, I did know that we were had been facing for a number of years, increasing number of hurricanes and earthquakes and fires and other once in 100 year events that were happening every year or so. I knew that we we had we were failing ourselves. That we were, we created a, a failing global system that we call a death economy, and that we needed to transform that into something called a life economy. And so, although I didn't know about the coronavirus, I knew we were facing these these crises. And as it turns out, the book is actually it's, it's a perfect timing as far as this, this coronavirus is concerned, because it really deals with in issues that are specifically related to that now. No doubt, the timing is quite remarkable, and people, I think, are experiencing, well, I know, is we hear reports of increased, you know, mental health issues and, you know, incidents of abuse. And already we know there was a lot of dysfunction going on in the world, you know, loneliness and addiction and depression and, you know, these other things. And now perhaps it's merely taken a different form or in some ways intensified. So definitely this book is very timely. And and I have this idea, maybe you sense this too, about, I think even before this pandemic, people live with this kind of unnameable sense of we're all screwed, like knowing that the way we're living as a global society is not sustainable and that the future, if we continue on this course, is not particularly beautiful and feeling like maybe as individuals, we're powerless to do much about that, but we want to. Right. And this kind of thing and this term that you use of a life economy and a death economy, of course, is central to this, but not terminology, I think, that is in broad use just yet. Will you talk a little bit more about how do you define a death economy? What is it? How does it contrast to a life economy? Yeah. So a death economy is an economic system that's ultimately unsustainable. It's, it's basically, it consumes itself into extinction. It, it, you, it, in order to satisfy its short-term goals, which in this case, in general, the short-term goal is that businesses need to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. And the profits usually benefit a fairly small number of quite rich people. 
And that, that goal has created this system that is totally landed on the short term and not working. Obviously, it's failing us. It's, it's the cause of climate change. It's the cause of income inequality. Even we could say of terrorism and the coronavirus and, and species extinction. These are all problems, but they're not the problem. They're symptoms of a much greater problem, which is a global system that's failing us because it's so oriented on the short term. And a life economy, on the other hand, is oriented toward the long term, and it's based on a perception, on a goal of creating and maximizing long-term benefits for people and nature. And incidentally, it's, it's, it's what indigenous people have always practiced. It's what human beings practice for almost all of the 250,000 years we've been human beings <laughs> until quite fairly recently when, when, when we focused on the short-term goals. And so that's, that's really the, the major distinction. If you look at a life economy, what specifically does that mean? It would mean that we pay people to clean up pollution, to regenerate destroyed environments, to create new technologies, recycle and, and, and use the wind and, and, and solar and, and the air and, and, and resources that are totally regenerative completely, that we would not constantly destroy the things upon which are our long-term survival depends. So it's quite simple, really. And the transition occurs simply by changing our perception of what the goal should be. So in the book, Touching the Jaguar, I can talk about the phrase, where does that come from? Because it really addresses this, that really our reality as human beings is totally molded by our perceptions. And if you have a perception that the goal of business is to maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And the goal of individuals is to maximize short-term materialistic uh, consumption. If that's your goal, then you're, you're in trouble. And that's where we are today. But if you change that perception and you have a new goal that, that, that it's to maximize, it's to, it's to pay investors a decent rate of return to develop processes, products, and systems that in fact create a life economy that maximize long-term benefits for humans and nature, and that changes the reality. And that's the area that I think we were, I know we'd already begun to move into, the Green New Deal, uh, conscious capitalism, and many other indicators. And I think this, this coronavirus is pushing us faster toward reaching that goal. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. And one thing that I like about this, and I don't know if you remember this, but I think it was actually back in 2017, we were together on a bus on that. I think it's like a four hour ride from like Shell and Puyo <laughs> up to Quito. And that was the first time I had heard these terms when you shared them during that ride about a life economy, a death economy. And, and what I suppose the word is excites, what excites me now to hear you talking about this more broadly. And I know you have been for many years, but for this to be central to your new book, is, you know, when people have a name for something, they have a concept for something, I think it becomes more real, right? And they can now start to move in that direction or inhabit, you know, what a life economy is. And so for what it's worth, I just want to thank you for your work to promote, you know, the concept of a, of a life economy and encourage people to move in that direction. Well, thanks for that, Brian. And, you know, and just just a few minutes ago, you, you mentioned the fact that people sort of are in denial, or they're, they, they don't they don't feel they have the power to kind of change things. That a lot of people do know that the system's failing us, and, and I, I just I think that's so true that that it's become pretty obvious 
that we're guiding our planet. We're, we're the pilots of the space, space station, this living space station, Earth. And we've not been very doing a very good job of piloting her. We're driving her toward disaster. And I think people have realized this. And, and like you said, they, they're kind of afraid to even admit it. And, you know, this whole concept of touching the Jaguar, that comes from as I tell you in the book, a schwa shaman. So, you know, you were spending time with some of the schwa and some of their neighbors, the achwa. And what they say is that on a vision quest or a shamanic journey, you see a jaguar often. And the jaguar represents that which you fear, which is usually change. And if you run from that, it chases you, it follows you, it hounds you. But if you reach out and touch it, you can take its energy, its courage, its wisdom, and and change and turn things around. So it, it is about not, not just recognizing, not just feeling in our hearts that we've created something that doesn't work, but also to realize that each and every one of us, every one of your listeners, has a role to play in this. I don't care whether you're a writer like me or, 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 or a, a plumber or a carpenter, a parent, a teacher, a podcast host, a, a yoga teacher, we, we, we all have a, a role that we can play in turning this thing around. We, we each have the power to do some aspect of this. And what we need to do is touch that Jaguar, and the Jaguar then tells each and every one of us, well, wh- what is it we can do? How can, how can we participate in this? And once again, this coronavirus, I, I think, is really forcing people to, to take a really good look at this. And it's making it obvious, you know, that, that, that we were on a course of destruction. When you see the, you know, when you see these satellite photographs of how China looked before and how the skies have cleared since and people in L.A. are seeing stars that they never saw before and, and so on and so forth. We're, we're getting all these signals that, 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 that we, we must change. And this coronavirus has forced us to change in some ways and will, will probably force us to, hopefully will force us to change permanently the way that we do many of the things that we've been doing wrong. Yeah, no, I I think you're right, absolutely, and uh, probably none of us know yet fully how life will be different in a few years. We'll find out. Let me ask you this: so you've talked a little bit about your work and your writing around shamanism. I understand that you are a shaman. You have done shamanic work, learned from, and taught shamanic principles on six continents. Will you talk about what is a shaman and what is shamanic work? Yeah, so I think to, to, to tell us is a little story. My, my first experience was in 1969. I was a Peace Corps volunteer deep in the Amazon rainforest with the Shwa people, and I'd gone down in '68 and in, in late '68. And, and in, in 1969, I got I very sick deep in the jungle. I, I, could, I was very sick. I couldn't keep any food down. I, I couldn't stand up. And there was no way I could walk for a day through very, very dense jungle to the nearest dirt road. And if I could find a rickety old bus, take it for two more days up <laughs> into the Andes to the nearest medical facility. I just couldn't possibly do it. So I was resigned to dying, actually. And this is all in the book, incidentally. And then one afternoon, uh, I was introduced to a shaman by the school teacher. And he said, this guy can heal you. Well, I had no idea what a shaman was. I graduated from business school. It's 1969. Hardly anybody ever heard of a shaman, you know. <laughs> but I was desperate. And so they, he did. That night, I, the shaman took me on this vision quest, this shamanic journey. And on that journey, suddenly, as I'm 
and in this altered state, I, I see this amorphous shape out there in front of me. And as the shaman says to me, touch the jaguar. And I looked all around like, oh, my God, this jungle, where's the jaguar? And, and then I realized that this amorphous shape was shape-shifting into a jaguar as, as a vision. And, and I reached out and touched it. And as I did so, I heard a voice, like my mother's voice, saying, son, it'll kill you. And what I also saw as a vision is the food and drink that I had been taking while, while living with these people. And I, I grew up 300 years of Yankee Calvinist in Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut. We ate very mild foods, bland foods. And now suddenly I'm eating some very strange things, <laughs> you know, squirming white grubs that you pull out of a rotting tree. In the Amazon, you've experienced this. People don't drink water. They, they. I mean, on our trips we get to drink water, but you, but you saw how the, the local people they drink something called chicha, which is a kind of beer that the women make by chewing and spitting manioc root, spitting it, and it sets up a, an alcohol that then you can add river water to it, and they realize you, otherwise you can't drink the river water because there's too much organic matter in it. It's dangerous. But if you add it to this alcoholic drink, it works. And so I'm drinking a lot of spit beer. I'm eating a lot of squirming white grubs. And I realize on this vision quest that every time I do that, I hear a voice saying it'll kill you. And at the same time, I see how incredibly healthy the schwa are. You saw them, Brian. They, you know, the men are built like Tarzan. You know, they yeah. carry the, the, they're hunters. They're very hunters. strong. And the, yeah. And, and people live to be very old if they're not killed in a hunting accident or a snake bite or something. So on that vision quest, this jaguar, then I, when I touched the jaguar, it, it showed me that what was killing me, why I was so sick, was a matter of perception. It wasn't the food and drink. It was my perception of it. And once I got that, the next day I was in very good shape. And a couple of days later, the shaman comes back to me. And as payment, he, he demands I become his apprentice. Now, again, 1969, I graduated from business school. There's no future in shamans. <laughs> Never even heard of a shaman. And, but the guy saved my life. So, so I, I studied with him. And what I learned, and then later on, I studied with shamans, as you point out, all over the world. And all of them have the same concept that our reality is molded by our perceptions. And when you come right down to it, that's modern psychotherapy, that's quantum physics, that's advertising, that's marketing. When you think about it, there is no United States, there's no Mexico, there's no, there's no culture, there's no religion, there's no corporations, there's no economy except as, as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it has a huge impact on, on reality. And I realized then later, I went back to do what I'd been trained to do in business school. I became an economist. I became chief economist. I did what we call economic hitman work. And all of that, the, the, the stuff we were doing was based on various perceptions about what makes up GDP, about what makes GDP grow, about what GDP really is, which which is a t total false perception of GDP is a measure of national prosperity. It isn't. It's a measure of the prosperity of a few very wealthy people, essentially. And so, you know, I've, over and over, I kept understanding this role of perception and that if we want to turn the economy around, if we want to change the way we live, we've got to change our perception. We've got to move from this idea of short-term profits, short-term benefits, short-term growth, short-term maximization and move to a, 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 a view of, of long-term as, as indigenous people always have, as all of our ancestors did, looking at how do you take care not just of yourself, 
and, but also of your of your children and your grandchildren, your great grandchildren. That's a very very human concept, which we've abandoned during this time of the what's called the industrial revolution, the scientific whatever you want to call it. That just just been really a, a blink of of the eye in, in terms of human history. Yeah, something I've heard you say before is that we all we all have indigenous roots. If you go back far enough, right? And and what I wonder is. Maybe there's something more you mean than that. I mean, I think it's pretty self-evident. It's true on a very basic level. But what I'm particularly curious about is how and why and maybe when did we in the Western, what we consider the developed world, you know, lose that connection to nature, the long-term perspective, the the realization of all things being interrelated? What What's your view on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's historians that have written about this, and Rianne Eisler and people have written The Blade and the Chalice and such things where you, you go back and you look at maybe it really got started when we moved into an agricultural societies. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a long history that's taken us in the trend of, of dominating nature, controlling nature, growing products and so forth. And let's face it, a lot of it's been extremely beneficial to us as human beings. You know, we've, it's, we've created amazing science, amazing medicine, amazing art, amazing music, so, so many things that we've, we've, we've created as a result of that. Yeah. And lots but of comforts. Oh, so, so, sorry, just jump in there too. Yeah. And, lo- and lots of comforts, conveniences, pleasures <laughs> for sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Air conditioning and, but, and know, refrigeration. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And it's, it's, it's gone too far. And, I, and one of the trigger points for it going too far was 1976. Something phenomenally important and disastrous in a way happened in 1976. And let me just say that before 1976, when I was in business school, I was taught that a good CEO makes a decent rate of return for investors, but also takes good care of his employees, health care, insurance, and, and, and pension funds, and, and so on, and decent pay and takes good care of his customers and his suppliers and the communities where the business works and not only pays taxes, imagine that these days, but also, you know, will contribute money to recreational facilities or, or educational systems or libraries or whatever. I was taught that, but mm-hmm. that, that changed in 1976 and it had been growing. It had been growing. But in 1976, when Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in economics and Friedman said a lot of good things, but the one thing you said that was very, very important and ultimately very destructive was that the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term profits for a few consumer, for, 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 for the shareholders, regardless of the environmental and social costs. And again, that had been growing around Hayek a few years earlier when the Nobel Prize saying something similar. But Friedman had a lot of power. He became an advisor to President Reagan. Margaret Thatcher embraced him, people all over the world. And since 1976, that has become the sole guiding principle that's taught in business schools. It's promoted by the World Bank and and other such organizations that that we must maximize short-term gains, profits. And so this whole process that you described of, of moving us away from nature, it began a a long time ago, but again, it's kind of a blink in human history. It seems a long time, maybe we'd say three, 4,000 years ago, that process began. But when you talk about 250,000 years, that's still a pretty short period. 
But it really took off. The, the really, really destructive part has taken off since in, since 1900, since the First World War, the Depression, the Second World War, and then Friedman. And Friedman had a huge impact of changing perception. So he went from the perception of a CEO does good things to a CEO should do whatever it takes to maximize short-term profits. And that includes corrupting politicians if necessary and even creating laws so you can corrupt them legally through campaign financing, destroying the environment, destroying the resources upon which your company depends in the long term in order to make short-term profits. So that statement in 76 took us, you know, just elevated this whole thing to a much higher level, and it's been accelerating ever since, and now it's brought us to where we are today. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Let me go back to something that you shared. It was about when you apprenticed to this shaman in Peru back in 68. What does an apprenticeship to a, to a shaman look like? What did you do? <laughs> well, and it was in Ecuador, near the border with Peru, but in the, in the Amazonian area, that, that whole area of, of Ecuador and Peru is called the sacred headwaters of the Amazon because it's where the whole Amazon basin and the Amazon River begins. And it, it's, it's the beginning of an area that's forested and, and is, is a little larger than the continental United States. It's a huge area. It's, it's having some tough times these days. But so uh, the apprenticeship, well, let, let, and let me, let me frame this by saying that, as I mentioned, all shamanism and, psych, and, and psychotherapy is, is driven by this idea that reality is molded by perceptions. But each culture has a way of expressing that and communicating it, and they're all different. And you have to learn that in the culture. For example, in our culture, the shamans are the psychotherapists, and they use language. It's taking people through language, questioning them, asking them to go into their feelings, their understandings, and so forth. In places like the Andes, it's using a lot of items from the sacred volcano, stones and fire and things like this that are used in, in communicating this. In the Amazon, where I was first trained, it's sacred plants. With, with, uh, is, and at the time, these were unknown in the United States. But today, things like ayahuasca are quite well known by a lot of people. Uh, so I was trained as an ayahuasca shaman. But the ayahuasca is just a means of taking you into the space where you, can, where you can go deeper into what it is you really want in life and how you can touch that jaguar. The psychiatrist or psychologist does, does the psychotherapist does the same thing by t- kind of taking you there through words and sometimes through hypnosis, which in essence is a shamanic journey. But in the Amazon, where I was first trained, it's a preparation of these plants and, and helping the, the, the client, the patient, get into the spirit of the plant. It's not about the chemical qualities of the plant. It's about feeling the spirit of the plant and letting that spirit open you to a larger vision of who you are, what you want to do for the rest of your life, what's stopping you from doing that, a jaguar, how you touch that, and that's a perception usually, and usually it's a perception of fear, and, and how you touch that jaguar, change that perception, and use that jaguar, use those blockages to actually empower you to move forward, and then to decide on what actions you take to actually make it happen. And incidentally, that process is, is the same throughout almost all cultures, including psychotherapy. It's just a different, it's expressed in different ways. Yeah, it has a different form that's culturally acceptable to the time and place, right? Which right. I'd never exactly. thought of it where, 
you know, I never thought of the, the therapists in our society serving that kind of shamanic function by helping people mm. go into a space that they either aren't aware of or they don't know how, but that that's pretty remarkable. This about well, ayahuasca. Oh, oh, go ahead, please. No, that's no. I'm just agreeing with you. Yeah, yeah. it is remarkable, and it, it really is the essence of of healing, of psychotherapy. Yeah, you know, and and then when you talk about this in terms of healing as well, you know, I have a teacher who talks about. I pondered on this for a long time, but but what he said was that all healing involves a change in meaning, and I thought that is a really mm-hmm. interesting statement. You know on many levels, but with that, clearly, you know, something like an ayahuasca journey can bring a new awareness or a new interpretation, a new perception, no question. But this is something I think a lot of people are aware of now more than ever. It's kind of, how do I say this? It's become culturally interesting in the United States. And I think this whole conversation around psychedelics and other things, but for those who maybe haven't had the opportunity to experience this firsthand, what is what is ayahuasca and how can one more let me just ask that what is ayahuasca it's a sacred tea i guess you'd call it it's it's usually made with two different plants one is the famous one that's actually called the ayahuasca plant it's a vine and steropsis caipe but it has to be combined with at least one other plant and all over the amazon this is done but in each area it the different plants are used because they're not always available in the same areas. And there's many plants that are combined with the, the, that vine to create this, this tea that's then oiled for a number of hours and you then drink it. And it typically, it, it impacts everybody differently. And I, my belief is that like all of these processes, whatever it is, whether it's meditation or shamanic journeying or ayahuasca or, or psychotherapy if you really get get it you you get what you really need right at that particular time and mm-hmm. that can change over time and it's different for everybody so you can i can be with eight people who are all taking the same ayahuasca from the same shaman and it's the same amount and you'll have eight totally different experiences so you i think it really you get what you what you need but and i also say that you know that the ayahuasca, the sacred plants, although I was trained in it and I've, I think very highly of them on many levels, it's just one way of doing it. And it does it does concern me, Brian, in, in a way that I think it's being abused now in yeah. many places like the United States. I think, you know, I, people will say that I just not long ago had someone come up to me and say, hey, you know, I took ayahuasca 20 times in the last six months. How many times have you taken it? And I said, well, I, the last time I took it was 10 years ago. And I'm still and I'm still working on that. Yeah. And the plant, what the plant does is it opens you to things that you really need to look at and work on. And unfortunately, I think in our culture, people have gotten it's almost become socially addictive. It's not yeah. physically addictive, but it is socially addictive. I think it can be. Yeah. You know, people say, well, you know, I just want to go through that again. And I had one great experience, and I'm looking for more. Chances are you're not going to get another great experience because the plant wants you to deal with the one great one you had and really go deep into it to really touch that jaguar and figure out what you're going to do with your life. Yeah. No, I, I remember something similar from someone we visited on a journey to Ecuador when he was a shaman and said, I think he was in his 60s, and he said he'd only ever used ayahuasca three times. But he'd hear, you know, people come down and brag about how many times, you know, like Americans would say, oh, I've done it this many times. And it's like, it's not a recreation. <laughs> it's not for recreation. <laughs> right. 
Right. Yeah, that was in that cave with Alberto Tazzo up in the Andes. He, yeah. I remember him saying that. And you'd find that true of, of, of many shamans, that they would say, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an opening. But Alberto, for example, does a lot of work with drums and flutes and, and other things. I think we did that in that cave. I think we did some drumming. I can't remember exactly at that time what we did. But yeah. So there's so many ways to do this. I just yesterday was on a program, a, a webinar, and I, I took people on a shamanic journey using rattles. There were like 80 people on the program, and a, a while ago I did it with 2,000 people. And, and we went on this shamanic journey, and with the responses we got in the chat room were done on Zoom, where we're huge. I mean, very, very powerful. People have powerful experiences doing that. And incidentally, I do a program every two weeks now. For if, if, if you pre-order the book at johnperkins.org, you get invited to be on this, this thing. And, and this next Thursday, a week from yesterday, we'll have a Mayan shaman from Guatemala who will be on live. He's a shaman that I take people to every year. He's a very, very powerful, wonderful human being, an incredible shaman. And he'll be with me next Thursday. If people want to join, they can do that. I'd love to have him. It's free. Awesome. That's amazing. And people, you said people can learn more about that at johnperkins.org. Yeah. And basically what it means is there's a, there's a site there. You, you pre-order the book and you get invited to at least a number of things that you get invited to do. And we've now got a lot of people that are doing it and everything else is, is free. You know, only thing you get to order the book and you can order from any bookstore. You can order from your local bookstore. Anyway, there's this, you know, this indie, indie book, uh, there's a link and there's Amazon, there's everything on there. So it's all right there for people to do. And I, I, it's a lot of fun. I'm having a really good time putting all this together. Yeah, that's great. Let me ask you about this before we transition to the enlightening lightning round. I think you've touched on this a little bit, but for people who are concerned about the future of the planet, about the well-being of human beings who want to make a difference. You know, what what advice or encouragement do you have to to anybody who's listening who you know wants to move, I mean they might not say it this way, but maybe they would resonate with they want to be more powerful. They want to make a contribution. They want to be a part of a solution. What what do you say to that person? So that's a great question, and it's a, the, the book leads up to this completely. And in the end, the book offers a 10-minute daily practice, and it, it probably takes less than 10 minutes if you want. You don't have to do it every day. You can do it once a week or whatever works. But it, it takes you into this process for each individual. So Again, it's different for each individual. But let me and, – and, and there's a workbook also if you – if you sign up for this group, if you buy the book, what I just mentioned, uh, johnperkins.org, you, you get a workbook that really makes it easy to do this. But let me, I'll give you the overview <laughs> of the process. So you need, it's important to get some of the stories behind it to really make it make sense, but here's an overview. Mm-hmm. So you start by asking yourself five questions. And the first question is, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? What will give me the greatest satisfaction? What will bring me the greatest bliss? the greatest joy. If I'm on that proverbial deathbed, what will I look back and regret having not done it? What will I look back and be happiest that I did do? Well, now it's time to think about doing it. And I'm going to, as I go through these five steps, I'll give you my own personal interpretation, how I would interpret this. It'll be different for everybody. But so what I love to do most is write books. I love to write. So there. So the second question is, how can I tie this in with creating a better world, a life economy? And so for me, that's, I write books that tell stories and inspire people to help facilitate the transformation from a death to a life economy. 
for a carpenter, for example, that would be to use sustainable materials in his carpentry work or her carpentry work. And the third question then is, what's blocking me from doing this? What are the jaguars that's holding me back? Well, I can, I can mention quite a few as a writer, but the first one that's held me back was I was a great writer. I loved to write when I was in high school. I was at a paper. I won short story prize. And when I went to college, I had a freshman English teacher who was quite well known as a published author. He was highly critical of my work, never gave me anything above a C, totally discouraged me because I, I, my environment meant so much to me. It just deeply hurt me. I quit college as a result. I ended up going back to college, but I didn't, go, didn't study English. I went into business, economics, I was, and I didn't write. And then a number of years later, I, I came to realize that this professor was just a human being. He wasn't a god. He didn't know. And it struck me that this guy did not like Bob Dylan's writing. He criticized Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan wasn't, won the Nobel Prize in literature. <laughs> so it's like, okay, God, I touched that Jaguar. I can write. I can't, don't have to be, I'm, this guy's not an authority. I don't have to listen to him. I got to listen to myself, to my writing. That was a huge Jaguar to touch and that gave me the energy and the and encouragement and the, and the courage to, to move forward. The, 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 so that's the, the, that's the fourth question. You know, how do we change our perception? Touch that Jaguar, change that perception. Go from a perceptionist, this guy says I'm a lousy writer, therefore I must be a lousy writer, to who cares what this guy says? I'm a good writer. And then the next, the fifth question is, what actions do I need to take to realize this? And, and for a writer, it's for me, it's, it's you got to write every day, or almost every day, you got to write. You don't wait for inspiration. You gotta, it's just like a pianist has to keep practicing, even on bad days. And so, and I'd go back to this carpenter. So a carpenter loves to work in wood. How does he tie that into sustainable products? And what's, what's one of the jaguars, the barrier? Ah, his, so the carpenter would say, so, oh, my clients don't want me to use sustainable products because it costs more. He touches the jaguar. The jaguar says, tell your clients that's not a cost. It's an investment in the future. It's an investment in your future and your kids' future and your grandchildren's future. Ah, so I've touched that Jaguar, changed that perception. What are the actions I need to take? Well, I need to get out there and sell my services as a carpenter and let people know that by using sustainable materials, they're doing a really good thing for the kids and the grandkids and so on and so forth. So we go through this process. You ask yourself these five questions. What is it I most want to do? How does that tie in with making a better world? What's stopping me from doing it? What are the perceptions? What are the voices I've heard? Who's, who's told me I'm not good enough? I'm not well enough educated? And so on and so forth. Uh, how do I touch that Jaguar? The fourth question, how do I touch that Jaguar and change my perceptions? And the fifth, what actions do I take every day? And then that leads into this practice that you can do for five, for, for 10 minutes. I say 10 minutes, but you can actually do it for less. That, that will set you up each day to do something. And that may be a sm small act, depending on what, what it is, what your goals are. And that may be a sm small act, depending on what, what it is, what your goals are. Maybe as, as small as sending out a tweet or a posting on Facebook or, you know, writing 500 words in the book you're working on. It may be as big as running for president, you know, and everything in between. But every one of us can use this and it will bring great joy and uh, satisfaction to us when we do. I think that's really wonderful. And, and the way that you've, you've broken it down so simply and it, and it is logical, but the work of course is to do it and, and to, I mean, there, we, we always start somewhere and I know, you know, for myself and I think many people 
that we often, you know, think about either, oh, this is selfish. You know, I'm concerned, but how could the answer possibly be me doing what I want to do? But I love how the second question links it to, and how can it serve others? You know, how can it make a difference for others right there? And then, and then the other is about people maybe who feel a sense of it's not going to, it'll never work, you know, or whatever, but even in this, it provides a pathway. So I think that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. Well, before... So before we transition, is there anything else that that we haven't covered about this book, Touching the Jaguar, that you feel is important to talk about? Mine is the same, Brian, <laughs> okay. but they're all in the books. Okay. <laughs> I don't have time to go into them. There's some great stories, but, but the one thing I would say I'd, I'd like to leave the people with about that is that I think we should all realize that we're born at a, we're alive right now at a very blessed time. Because we humans are understanding that yeah. we need to change our course. It doesn't mean that the last thousand, hundred thousand years of our history have been wrong. It just means that they've come to a point where we really, really need to change. And the earth is sending us messages, whether you look at it from a shamanic perspective, that the earth is speaking to you, Mother Earth, the living earth is speaking, or from a totally scientific perspective. And that is that where we've seen how the, the, the air clears over China when the, when the industries close down. And either way, you can say that this it's a very clear message out, out there that, that we've been doing a lot of harm to, the, to our planet and to ourselves and to, to the life forms that we know and respect yeah. upon this planet. The planet will survive. The question is, well, will anything else survive that we're accustomed to seeing and experiencing on this planet? And where are every one of us that's on this program right now, you, every one of you out there, you were born at this amazing time in history because you have a role to play in it. Whatever your role in life is, you have passion, you have skills, and you're bringing them to bear right now at this time to, in order to, to, to facilitate the whole process it's a true evolution. We're going through a consciousness evolution as human beings on this planet, and we're all part of it. And so it's such a pleasant time to be alive, despite the challenges. And I don't want to make light of all the suffering that people are enduring today and the deaths and the sickness and so forth. I'm not making light of that at all. But I am saying that, that we, are, we are born at this time when, when we're being called upon to listen, to understand, and to act. Yeah, it really is. What a privilege. What a great view. Thank you. Well, with your permission, let's transition to the enlightening lightning round. Okay. Okay. So again, this is a series of brief questions on a variety of topics. I will ask the question briefly. You're welcome to answer as long as it feels right. And for the most part, I'm going to ask the question and stand aside. I might ask you to elaborate a little bit. Okay. Here we go. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a uh, box of marshmallows. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I, I couldn't resist. Uh, life is like a beautiful journey that has its ups and downs. It doesn't always appear to be beautiful, but if we open ourselves to the beauty that it is to be alive on this planet at this particular time, we see that it is. It's an amazing experience. So life is a great honor, it's a great privilege, and it's a beautiful journey that we are honored and privileged to take toward whatever it is that we're each directed toward. And each of us is, a, is, a, is an individual with, with our very specific, very special passions and talents that we can bring to bear 
on this journey through life to make it better for ourselves and those around us. Question number two, borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Mm, that's That's a stopper. I think I might say, based on feedback I've had in talks I've given, that at least up until now, a lot of people didn't share my hope call it optimism, but it's not blind optimism. It's hope based on experience that we really can transition from a death to a life economy. So I think there were a lot of people that didn't quite get it, but I think more of them are getting it now. I think this virus is pushing us into a better understanding of that. Okay. Thank you. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life, to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Well, if you could look at me right now, I'm wearing that shirt. It's got a big picture of a Jaguar on it. It's touching the Jaguar, transforming fears into action to change your life in the world. Okay. Thank you. Question number four, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Wow. There's so many that I recommend to different people at different times. So it's kind of hard to answer. I think this sounds, sheesh, it sounds awfully erudite perhaps, but I think one of the most telling books is Macbeth by Shakespeare. Hmm. I love that book, and I think it has a great deal to tell us about human nature and the way things proceed. So I guess I'd, I'd, rec- <laughs> I guess I'd recommend that one as a starter. Yeah, and I think almost any of Shakespeare's works are like a great answer to that, you know, if you were stranded on a desert island, <laughs> what book would you take? But what's yeah. one of the lessons? I mean, I know there's so much in, again, in any of his plays, but what, what's one thing that stands out to you about what one can learn from Macbeth? The importance of really looking at, at our actions and, and how they're going to affect our conscience uh, later on. So one of the most outstanding images of Macbeth is Lady Macbeth having her husband and she having having killed his uncle, who's the king. She goes out at night onto the, onto the ramparts of the castle and she's rubbing her hands together and she's talking about how she needs to wash away the blood. And of course, there's no blood on her hands. She's, she's already washed them with water and so forth, but the blood is on her conscience. And she's terribly guilt-ridden by this. And I, I think that the, the book has an awful lot to say about, heck, you know, you may be able to kill the king and, and become king, but it's going to be a shallow victory, and you're going to have to live with your conscience for the rest of your life. So watch, so, you know, look for the unintended consequences. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Question number five. So you've traveled a ton all over the world. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do, when you travel or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Well, as a writer, I used to take notebooks with me. Now I take a, you know, a small computer with me, a laptop, because I love to write. And so when I'm traveling, I'll take time to write things down. And some people would call it journaling. For me, it's, it's, it's I, I guess, I, yeah, I guess you could call it journaling. It's taking, it's writing things down. And sometimes when I'm, traveling, I'm working on a short story or, or, or I'm working on a book that I've written that I'm, that I'm in the process of writing that has, may have nothing to do with the place where I'm actually traveling. Here's an example. Right now, I'm revising and, and putting together a book of short stories that I wrote. It's the first time I'm going to try to publish fiction, 
But many of these short stories I wrote about my experiences in the Amazon, and I wrote them while I was in Iran or in Greece or in Saudi Arabia as an economic hitman. Way back then, I, I wrote these short stories because they soothed my nerves. They, it's, for me, writing is a, is a meditation. So, so I'm not always writing about the place I'm at. That's why I say I'm not sure exactly it's journaling, but I love to write, and it, it brings me great peace. So that's, I, I always bring something with me that allows me to write. Hmm. What is it? I, I was going to save this until the, the last section of our interview, but you've mentioned a couple times your love of writing. And here you just mentioned that it soothes yeah. your nerves, but what is it that you love so much about writing? You know, it started when I was a kid. I was an only child. My dad taught at a boys' prep school, boarding school, and he got three months off every summer. And we spent those three months at a cottage on a lake in New Hampshire, in the woods of New Hampshire, on a lake that my grandfather built in 1920 or 21. I, I still have that cottage today. But as a kid, it was very lonely. My parents did their own thing. They, they guard, they, 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 they had their hobbies. And, and I was alone a lot of the time. And I spent a great deal of time in the woods talking to the trees. <laughs> I, was, I was practicing shamanism before I ever heard of it. But on rainy days, I'd be in the house, stuck in the house, and usually a fire in the fireplace. And I'd create my own world by writing. And it started with, when I was quite young, with just little stick figures and cartoons that I would create. And then as I got to be a little bit more skilled, I would write short stories. And then at one point, I started writing a novel when I was in fifth, I think fifth grade. And so I was creating my own world. I was very lonely as a kid. There were no other kids around that, 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 in those woods or that lake. And so I was really creating my own world. And I think today I can say that, that writing is a tremendous outlet for me to create, to work on creating the world. That right now I, I want to see the life economy. I'm working on creating, I'm working on creating that. It can also be extremely cathartic. So Confessions of an Economic Hitman, when I finally wrote and confessed of what I had done, which had been really impacting my conscience for many years. By writing about it, getting that story out there, it was a very cathartic experience for me. It was my own form of shamanic healing. It was my, you know, it was my psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's incredible. What is it, if anything, that you find challenging about writing? Well, the mo <laughs> I love editing. When I edit my, for myself, I'll, I'll write a chapter and and then I'll spend a lot of time going back in and trying to, what I say, putting clothes on the mannequin, basically. So you get, you know, you create that mannequin, you create the basic sculpture, now you gotta, you gotta put the details in. And I love doing that. But then it comes a time when it goes out to the editors <laughs> and they come back with all these suggestions. A good editor is not gonna tell you what to do, they're gonna make suggestions. And 10 books later, I'm getting a little better, but I get these suggestions and I have a knee-jerk reaction. You know, like, mm. no, you know, like, what do you know? You know <laughs> yeah. it, may, it may go back to that college professor in a way. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that, that would be my least favorite part of the whole process is when that stuff kind of, and I've learned over time that very often those editors are right, but I still have that, that kind of knee-jerk reaction. Like, wait, what are you, what are you saying? What do you know about this? Yeah. You know? So that's a tough process for me a little bit, but so I've learned to deal. I think I've learned to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I know for anyone who's worked, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with an editor, different editors and some, I, I feel like I have a great chemistry with like they, we share a vision, but not too perfectly, you know, so they helping me see things that I couldn't see myself and, and all that. But what's your experience with, how do you know when to really 
acknowledge or trust what an editor is saying? And how do you know when to trust your own instinct and your own voice? Yeah, I've learned that. Uh, and even as I'm reading through the document myself, the first, uh, you know, before it even goes to an editor, the same thing kind of holds. And then once the editor comes in, there's a feeling. You know, if I'm reading something that I've written or that the editor, has, or an editor has, has read, and I get, oh, it kind of like, a, it's almost like I get something bit my, my spinal cord, you know, and just, oh, you know, just this little, then I know that I probably got it. It's not right. I got to change it. And, and originally when I started writing to publish, which was fairly late in life, you know, after I overcame all these fears about writing, I would get that and then I go back and say, well, no, wait, that's a beautiful sentence. So that's a great paragraph. I don't want to take that out. But I've learned, it's partly because of what editors have shown me, that usually if I have that little jerk, I, I do need to take that sentence or that paragraph out or I need to deeply modify it, even if I think it's brilliant. Because it may be a brilliant sentence, it may be a brilliant paragraph, but it may stop the action. And I, I just went, went, went through that this morning. I was reading one of these short stories I wrote years ago and I'm, I'm reading through it. Oh, that's wait, wait. Oh, and I'm describing this lizard on the wall in, in a hooked in a in a in an outdoor restaurant in Indonesia. And it, it it's a beautiful description of this lizard on the wall kind of seeming like it's listening to me. Of course it really wasn't probably, but I'm going through this thing and I think this even this lizard understands what I'm going through. And and it was really beautiful, but I realized it stopped the action that, that was in a flow. Mm-hmm. And so I had to take it out. And so this, I, th- I think that, that, that you could call that intuition. I don't know really what the word for it is, but that little sense. And I think we, you know, we can experience that in so many things in, in life, Brian. We can, you know, in talking to people, you know, oh, I can't believe I just said that. Or, or should I say, that? I, you know, I can't, maybe I better go back in and see if I can correct that. Or, you know, you can look at it. As, again, if I go back into carpentry, a carpenter's working on something and, and puts a puts a, a hook in here, a nail there, a, a board here, that color, or a piece of tile here, and says, "Hmm, that doesn't feel quite right." Hmm. So there's that feeling that we need to follow our heart, and of course that's very shamanic too. That's very indigenous. Like follow your heart, feel your heart, feel the passion. What does the what is the passion telling you? So it's yeah. about the passion, I think. Awesome, thank you. Just to bring bring us back to the enlightening lightning round, we got on that thread of conversation through your travel and you're talking about you always bring you know something with which to write but let me come back to that question about things you do when you travel maybe also just exploring is there anything you do in the preparation any specific requests you make of hotels or airlines or anything you do with your itinerary or your exercise or anything else that you do when you travel that has served you well over the years well, I travel so much. Well, I'm not traveling much right now, but prior to this, you know, I was doing four trips a year to Latin America, taking people, no no more than 15, but once a year to the Mayan people of Guatemala, once a year to the Kogi of Colombia, once or twice a year to, to the people of, of the Amazon and Andes. And then also I was, I've been teaching every year at several places in Europe and throughout the United States. So I travel a lot. And so I basically, and I don't carry on. I mean, I, I sorry, I only carry on. I don't check luggage under the plane. <laughs> Always. That's just uh, something never, you do every time, regardless yeah. of where you're going or how long you'll be there? Every time, unless there's something that the indigenous people have asked me to bring them, you know, like something that they need for machetes or something that I have to put under the plane. And that's very rare. For my own stuff, it's whether I'm gone for a week or three months, I carry it on. 
and I've learned how to pack well to, to do that. I can wash my own clothes in the sink if I need to, or in a river. From the hotel, I can get them done, perhaps, although it's usually awfully expensive. So I usually yeah. have clothes that I can do easily. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much ready to pack, so there's, I, I, there's not a lot of preparation that I have to put into it at all these days. It took a while to set those systems up. And actually, I have a list of things that if I'm going to Columbia, if I'm going to a tropical place, I have a list of things. If I'm going to a non-tropical place, I have another list of things, a cold place. And sometimes I'm going to do them all on one trip, and then I have a list that kind of makes that combination. So I do have some lists. So part of the preparation is get the lists out and check it off, check off these, these lists. And that makes it easy for me because I, you know, as I said, I, I, I travel a lot. So it's really helpful to have that going. If not, I'd be spending an awful lot of time worrying about it. Yeah. Amazing how powerful something as simple as a list can be, <laughs> how useful. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Thank especially you. if you're really trying, if you're really trying to keep your numbers and you know, and I know that people come go for 10 days into the Amazon and they'll come in these huge suitcases two suitcases for per person, you know, under the plane and then one on the carry-on. It's like, and what I noticed about this is those are just huge obstacles. When they get to where, you know, every every time they get to a hotel, they got to go through all this stuff. And this, yeah. <laughs> what am I, what am I, what am I going to do? What, should, what am I going to wear now? What am I going to, I don't have to, I don't, mine's ready. <laughs> yeah. That always explains why you were early to every, every meal and every gathering. <laughs> <laughs> um, that makes sense. Okay. Um, yeah. Great. Question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Uh, well, for a long time, I, I, I practiced martial arts for almost 30 years. Then I moved from where I'd been living for a long time to this island off the coast of Seattle where I live now. And I did this when I was in my mid to late 60s. Uh, there was no martial arts studio on this island that, that I, I could relate to it at that point in my life. And so I, I stopped doing martial arts and I took up something that I'd done when I wasn't able to do martial arts, like when I was traveling, which was jogging in the forest. And I got to say, I never really enjoyed jogging, but I love being in the forest. And so now I, I don't just jog, I jog, sprint, walk stop for a mile or so, and then I meditate for half an hour or so, or, you know, meditation for me in a forest can be sitting and listening to the birds and picking out the sound. It doesn't have to be a, like a tantric meditation or a Zen meditation. It could be many different kinds. And then I, I jog, walk, sprint again for another mile, mile and a half. And I do that basically every day. Before the coronavirus, I also belong to a, there's a swimming pool here that is on this island. It's an indoor pool that you can if you're, a member of the, if you're a member of the island community, you get to go to it for a very, very cheap price. Swim laps in a, an Olympic pool to vary sometimes with the, with the jockeying. So, yeah, I, I really try. I'm 75 years old, and I stay in very good shape. And I, I'm very aware of not overeating. I'm, I'm essentially a vegetarian, and I'm not obsessive about it. When I'm in a culture where people are eating meat, if I'm in the Amazon, and they're all excited about this, this thing that they're serving, uh, I'll join them. But when I'm home and, and the woman I live with, my partner is vegetarian also. And I think that's a, that's a healthy thing. So I'm, yeah. I'm very conscious of, I'm very conscious of my body as well as <laughs> my mind and, and writing. 
No, that's great. And I'm really glad to to hear that you're doing all that to take care of yourself because my dad died at 64 years old due to a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, health issues that he could have, I think, prevented if at least, you know, not he could have treated them. And I think if he'd done a lot of what you're saying, he'd probably still be here too. So good for you. Yeah. Do you take care of yourself? Oh, very much. You know, yeah. Don't, don't fall in. I remember you're in good shape. You don't fall in your dad's footsteps. No, seeing him <laughs> die that way changed me for sure. Yeah. And you know, Brian, I just say for some of you listeners might find this interesting. I, I talk in this book about how in 19, in 2005, shortly after confessions came out, and I was about to speak at the United Nations, I was poisoned. And that's it's a long story. I don't want to get into it. It's in the book. But I ended up spending two weeks in a New York City hospital, which is where I was supposed to speak at the United Nations and the, the, the day before I was poisoned. And, and they, they removed three quarters of my colon. And I was told at the end that, that you know, what they, what I had basically been converted into a carnivore. Carnivores have short stomachs, they have short colons. Mm-hmm. And omnivores have much longer ones and vegetarians even long, longer ones, herbivores. But the doctor had read my book Shapeshift, and he said, I, "I think you can. I think you can overcome this. I, I should be telling you not to eat vegetables and and and, and salads. <laughs> so you should stay away from roughage." Well, I basically live on it today. I did. I did do that. That that shape shift. But also, the doctor told me, and so I was a bit younger than I am now. But the doctor said, "You know, it's a good thing you're you, you're in such good shape." He said, you're, "You're recovering really quickly, and I think you can turn this thing around." It really helped the fact that you've been getting exercise. Those days I was doing martial arts. And and I think that was a very, very important message for me to keep, to stay this way, to continue to stay in shape, because it, it really helps the health situation. And also the confirmation that I'd done this physical shape was pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I, I, you know, it's always like that saying, uh, never trust a skinny cook, <laughs> you know, people who don't practice what they <laughs> preach. So... Yeah, I would expect nothing less from you, John. That's great. (laughs) Well, good. Okay, question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Well, I wish every American knew a lot more about the world. I wish every American spoke two languages because I think that helps us think in different ways, too. It doesn't even really matter what the language is. And really worked harder on on understanding the perspective of of the rest of the world. I feel very, very fortunate that the Peace Corps volunteer and then studying shamanism and our traveling and speaking Spanish, that, that I get these other perspectives. And from that perspective, is one of the reasons I write some of the books I write, sometimes I've been accused of, but you're just very critical of, 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 the, of the United States. I'm not, I don't feel I'm critical at all. I feel like it's my job in a democracy to point out flaws that we may have that we, that we can get better at it. I'm a very loyal American. But I can see from the perspective of other countries how they may look at us. Right now, a lot of Latin American countries, or up until the virus anyway, we're turning more and more to China because they don't trust the United States. And I can totally understand that. And I think it's, I think it's a terrible shame. I don't think yeah. they should be trusting China either. But, but they've, they've seen that, that we've you know, done some pretty tough things that I did as an economic hitman in that whole system. And I, I think it would really help if more Americans understood how other countries look at us, n- not so that we can chastise ourselves, but so that we can recognize that we have the ability to change and we need to listen to others no, and see I, what others have to say about us so that we can improve. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you there. Well, thank <laughs> you for that. 
Okay, question number eight. What is something that you've learned that served you well about making relationships work? I think the idea that we have to touch the Jaguar in our relationships, it's about perception. So for example, the woman I've been, I live with now and I've been with for about 10 years, we're both very feisty and passionate and, and, you know, we can get, we can get, you know, we can get our passions up pretty quickly. And early on, I, you know, I would do things like slam the door, run out of the house, slam, I just can't deal with this. And I'd go off and think, well, let me give you an example. We were in Scotland one time in Edinburgh and I wanted to go into this museum and the sport and she wanted to go and look at uh, tartans, you know, a woolen, a woolen store that had all these tartans and things and sweaters and kilts and everything in it. And I didn't have any interest in that. And we get into kind of a fight about what are we going to do this? I said, oh, sure, I'm going to do that. I want to do this. And I just, you know, left the hotel. And, and then I went outside and I, and I realized, well, that was pretty stupid. I got to touch that Jaguar. Like, wait, we can, we, we actually can do both. And I've just dug in. I don't mind going to a tartan store for a while. And I don't think she's going to mind going to the museum for a while. We spent all afternoon there, we, you know, and and looking really looking at it from from her perspective that she she loves to look at things like that. And and so to to constantly see to try to look at it from the other person's perspective, it's a little bit like what I was saying about being an American and looking at it from other countries' perspective. I think we can take that to our personal relationships too. How is my perception? impacting me so much so in that case the perception was well she's trying to keep me from going to the fort mm-hmm. and her perception probably was he's trying to keep me from going to the store but those were both false perceptions really i was just trying to make sure i had time to go to the fort and she was trying to make sure she had time to go to the tartan store and once once we see that it changes everything so i think to really try to see things from the standpoint of the other person and to try to identify well, what is the perception that has caused you to have this reaction? What is touch that jaguar? And when that jaguar comes back and says, "Hey, that was just a perception. You can change that perception, and you mm. can, and then you act differently." Yeah, that's great. So the last question here in the enlightening lightning round is about money. And the question is, what is the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money, or what's something you're always sure to do with it, or you never do with it? Well, the most important thing I think is is to learn how how important it is not to organize your life around it. So, you know, one of the reasons I stayed as an economic hitman for ten years, I, I, the first five or six years, I thought I was doing the right thing because what, what I was doing was ripping off third world countries. But that's what we've been taught. That's actually the whole process of investing and getting them to take on huge loans from the World Bank to hire our corporations that made huge profits, building big infrastructure projects in their countries would raise prosperity. And statistically, you can show that it did raise GDP, but that wasn't prosperity. The, the, the middle classes and the poor people were, were, were suffering because money was being diverted from education and healthcare and other social services to pay off the interest on the loans, while the while the people that own business were benefiting hugely from the infrastructure, the, the better electricity production or the highways or whatever. I believe that for the first five, six years. But then after that, I realized, that, no, wait, this isn't working. GDP is a lousy measure. It only measures how the wealthy are doing pretty much. But I didn't want to get out because I thought I was living the American dream. 
was making a very good salary. I was flying first class around the world, staying in the best hotels, mining and dining with presidents. And here I was, this kid had been brought up as son of a teacher in a boy's private school. My dad never made much money. We had a house, we had food given to us. I was surrounded by very rich boys from all these other parts of the world. And I'd always wanted, wanted that life. And now I've got it. So I don't want to admit that what I'm doing is wrong. I want to keep making the money. And then I eventually it struck me that I was really unhappy. Yeah, I was living this life, but I was also living on Valium and booze. So I flew across jet zones and, and would take booze and Valium at night and wake up in the morning and fill myself with coffee and go off to these meetings that I really didn't enjoy. And so I got out of it. And now I do what I really love to do. I live in a pretty small house. I live very frugally, despite all the, the books that have sold. The, 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 my initial contract on con- con- Confessions of an Economic Hitman was set up in such a way that I didn't make a lot of money off of it, and that was okay with me. It had been rejected by 39 publishers. And there's one publisher that published it. We, so we, we struck a deal that enabled him to pull himself out of bankruptcy, basically. And I'm happy for that. And I'm really all I wanted to do is get the message out. I don't make a lot of money now. I usually I don't fly first class unless it's because I travel a lot. They boot me up there periodically. I live a very different life from that. And I'm happy. And so I've, I came to realize that, that that American dream of lots of money, lots of these glamorous things that I was doing as an economic hitman, that American dream of materialism was a nightmare, it was, or at least an illusion. It was a false dream. I think it was very, very important. And, you know, now I, I do still like to go out to restaurants here on the island where I live, but this last two months, we haven't gone to restaurants at all. They are open. Yeah. And eating at home, we're having a great time, you know. And, and each night we eat at a different restaurant because we have different candles that we put on the table and different music that we <laughs> play. <laughs> and so Kim and the woman I live with and I, every night we, have, we, we share a new restaurant and a new cuisine. <laughs> and it's basically, basically the same vegetables over and over with different sauces and sometimes with tacos and sometimes with rice and sometimes with pasta and sometimes with potatoes and different things but you know it's it's really been fun and and, and and so you you learn it's not about money it's not about you know material prosperity life is so much bigger than that yeah no doubt no thank you for that these are great questions brian and so you're a master you're pushing here this is this is fun now thank you i i certainly enjoy you know learning from your experience this way and and your and what you've learned so congratulations, you've survived the enlightening lightning round. So that was the, the final question here. I'll say this here to make sure that I include it and not try to leave it, you know, till the very end, but as a, an expression of gratitude to you, I have gone on Kiva.org and made a micro loan on your behalf of a hundred dollars to a woman entrepreneur in Peru named Hilda, Hilda Roxana, who's in a place called Cochara. I'm having a hard time pronouncing this <laughs> Coca. Chakra, Peru. And she'll use this to buy chicken and potatoes and sandwiches. I guess she has like a bodega or something and will sell these and improve the quality of life for her and her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to to make that micro loan. Ah, well, thank you so much for doing it. And felicidades. What was her name? It is Roxana. Ah, Roxana. Yeah. Yeah. Y sigue luchando con mucho amor y mucho, mucho cariño, mucho corazón. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Well, if she well, can hear that, if you, if you can send her that recording or whatever. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, with that, the last few questions I have for you again are about writing. And, and the first one is what you touched on right there about with confessions of an, of an economic hitman being rejected 39 times. How did you persist? What allowed you to keep moving forward with that book? And again, you might have, th- this might be mentioned, but the fact that, yeah, you said this earlier, that book has now gone on to sell more than 2 million copies, which is awesome. How did you persist in the face of 39 rejections? Yeah, good question. I have to touch a Jaguar a lot of times. You know, after about the seventh rejection, it's, it's the temptation is to say, well, nobody's going to buy this book. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I give up. But of course, I remember back to that English professor that I mentioned earlier, who discouraged, who I became discouraged as a writer, but by his criticism and how unimportant it actually was. And so each time I get a rejection letter, you know, I think, well, geez, maybe this editor had a fight with his wife at breakfast before coming in and just threw everything in the rejection file. Or maybe this editor, she maybe she had a headache when she went to work this morning or indigestion or this editor is afraid of what I'm right that maybe 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 he's afraid it's not true and he's going to be in trouble for that or maybe this editor doesn't like my politics you know so I'd, I'd come back with all these things that would you know to convince myself that well it's just another human being and that they've got their reasons but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the people who ultimately will want to read this book and that of course turned out to be true as you said two million copies it's in the 30s 30 some odd languages at this point. 70 um, weeks on the bestseller list, New York Times bestseller list. Right. So, you know, I kept on telling myself all those things that came true. And I think, that, again, it was it's touching this Jaguar. You go out there, oh, the Jaguar says, oh, look, you've been rejected by seven, seven publishers now. Give up. And if you run from that Jaguar, it just keeps chasing you. Like, you just keep giving up. But if you go out and touch that Jaguar, it says, hey, well, those are just seven human beings. Who knows what they were going through or who knows what their reasons were? Keep trying. And I kept trying. That's awesome. What (laughs) is your process for completing a book? Will you just kind of sketch out what is from the time you settle on a book that you're going to write? What is your process to take that book from concept to completion? You know, I, I teach courses periodically, and, and some of them online. I don't have any schedule right now, but if people, if people subscribe to my newsletter at my website, John Perkins, they can put their email in a little box, and I will be giving another one of these courses sometime. And I, I, I address this directly, and, and, and the short version is that, I, you know, there's, I think there's two basic ways to approach writing, and then I'm talking now about narrative nonfiction, which is what I write, which is you know, true stories, but written as stories, almost like fiction. So it may be different, different genres. But for me, there's like, I know people that go two ways. One is you, you come up with an idea and you, you, you sketch it all out. You come up with it with an outline of where to go with it. And you pretty well follow that outline. You may make some changes as you move along, but you, you know, you do that. For me, I like to pick something that really excites me to begin the book with. Touching the Jaguar begins with this experience I had with Lynn Twist, who you know, who wrote the book Soul of Money, but it's long before she wrote that book. And, and I took her to meet a shaman in, in Guatemala back in 1993. And it was when the Civil War was still going on in Guatemala, and we went through a very, very dangerous situation. It was an exciting way to start a book, and it was exciting to me to write it. 
So I start with that. And then I kind of just, for me, I let, kind of let the book write itself. I, I have a general idea of where it's going to go, but I, I really, I, you know, each morning I get up and I think, well, what do I really want to write about today? What's going to give me joy to write about today? And then I'll do that. At some point, then I, I have to go back in and say, well, do all the chapters fit together the way they are? Do we need to reorganize them? Do I need to provide more detail? That maybe is not the thing I'd really most want to write about this morning, but it needs to go in there in order to in order to support the things that I've already written about that I did enjoy writing about, and this brings it all together, and that, that brings me joy. So I really try to work from the standpoint of, of writing from, from a place of, of enjoyment of what, what I want to write about. It's kind of like what I said when I was a kid of, of creating that my own, that world that I want to be in. And I'll just add to that that sometimes I wake up and I think, God, I don't really want to work on that book anymore right now. I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm burned out. I just, it's, it's, and, and that happens. But I don't see that as writer's block. Well, I see it as as a short-term burnout, and so then I'll I'll get up and I'll write something else, maybe a short story, maybe one of the newsletters, or just just start writing things, and then eventually get back to that. But write something that I really do want to write about that morning. Maybe it's the bird sitting outside my window. So I think for me, it's 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 the it's the enjoyment of writing. And it's also the recognition that I'm going to throw an awful lot of my writing away. It's never going to be published, never going to be used. I, I like to tell people, I don't have any idea whether this is right numbers or not, but it's, it's in the ballpark. I've probably written a thousand pages for everyone ever published. Wow. If you think about it, well, if you think about it, a concert pianist practices for every, properly practices a thousand hours for every hour she's on the stage. That professional tennis player practices for a thousand hours for every hour he's on the, the circuit. Or something like that. I don't know whether it's a thousand or, or or ten or or, or, or three hundred. I don't know, but it's a lot. And we have to be prepared to do that. To recognize that any skill we have takes practice, and we have to be willing to to to, to, to start over. We have to be willing to to let go of some of it and realize that it's we're practicing all this time. Yeah. No, that's uh, I can see a way in which, on one hand, that can be a very discouraging view. To say, just go into it planning on some kind of a ratio like a thousand to one of what you write to what you publish. But from another view, that's just it's it's not disempowering. It's intelligent. You know, it's maybe realistic. Well, it's, yeah, and, and you have fun. I mean, I, I've written. I, I've never published a novel. It's always nonfiction, but I've written several novels that I've never tried to publish because I don't think they're very good. But I sure as hell had fun writing them. And they, sounds like you might still have that professor's voice ringing in your head, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm pretty, you know, and I've run them by, I've got an agent now. I run them by the agent. and He doesn't really want me publishing nonfiction. I mean, publishing fiction anyway, because he says, then they're going to wonder whether the, the nonfiction books are fiction in them. And, oh, but, yeah. but, but also he says, no, I, you know, these, you know, you're, not, you're just not a fiction writer, John. You write about what you've experienced, and you do a really good job at it. Just stick to it, and I, and and yeah, it, it could be though. But I'm happy to do it that way. And it, and honestly, writing these these novels has been brought me great joy. I I, I love doing it, and often between, I may take a while between books, so the ones that get published. I mean, like right now. I just finished Touching the Jaguar, and I'm working on a book of short stories, and I'm also just thinking of a novel I might start writing, and not necessarily with the idea of publishing it. You know, your ego would like to say, well, maybe someday my daughter 
who's yeah. who's having her 30, 38th birthday this weekend, maybe someday she'll dig these out of the trunk or off my computer <laughs> and make a make a fortune for herself. This is my legacy, but that's not what drives me. What drives me is the, pure, the sheer sheer joy of writing. And again, it's like a concert pianist. I think it's sheer joy. I was sitting at home practicing, playing, even though nobody's listening. Yeah, no, that that's great. Well, my fi- my final question, what you just said, it, it kind of inspired another one, but maybe maybe they're really closely enough related because the fir- the thing that came up is if people don't have that innate love like you're talking about, you know, are they on the wrong path or should they persist forward? So, so that's kind of one question. I'll just set that aside. You're welcome to answer that if you if you want to. But the, really, the final question here is about encouragement. What advice or encouragement would you leave people listening with, who are maybe in the middle of their own project or they're they haven't quite started? Maybe they don't have the faith or confidence in themselves. But what what advice or encouragement do you leave people listening to this with to help them get their own creative projects done? Follow your passion. Follow your heart. Go for the bliss and. Really look at that, and don't 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 assume that you've got to. There was a time when I decided I decided I had to write like Graham Greene, you know, the great British novelist who's no longer with us. But I loved his writing, and I I tried to imitate it, and it, I was lousy at it. That's not my style. <laughs> it was his style. I loved reading his stuff, but I didn't like writing it. And so I'd, I'd say for people, go with your passion. If your passion is to, to be a, a, again, a carpenter or a yoga teacher, whatever it is, go for it. Love, go for that. And don't tell yourself you ought to be doing something else. If your passion is writing, go ahead and write. But, but I, know, I know people that say, well, I, I need to write my story, but they really don't want to write their story. And I, I've known people that have been like that, and they've, they've told their story to somebody else who is a writer who then writes it so that that, that, that can be valid. But I would say always follow your passion. Go to what you really enjoy. Life is just too short not to do that. If you enjoy selling clothes, go go work for a clothes store, clothing store or design store. It wouldn't work right now, perhaps, but hopefully within months, maybe it will. If you love cooking, if you love leading on table and serving people, do that. And don't let anybody tell you, well, no, you really should be painting pictures or you should do you, you you get you've got the potential to be an actor you know and yeah i got a good friend who's a waiter and he 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 used to always tell people well i'm just doing this to make money but i really am as an actor and then one time he and i went out and had a few beers and i really got to talking to him and he says you know i really don't enjoy being on the stage or in front of a camera i don't i just don't i don't really like that i think that's what i should do everybody tells me i've got a great voice i've got a great talent I should be doing that, but I actually really enjoy waiting on table and getting to know these people and hanging out with them. And I said, give up the acting then (laughs) (laughs) or, or do it in some way that you do enjoy it. Don't do it because you've got a good voice or people tell you, you you know, you were a good actor in high school or something. Follow your passion. There's nothing like being a good waiter and enjoying that and hanging out with people. That's what what, what, what more can you ask if that's what you enjoy? Yeah, no, that's great. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And it, it reminds me too, by the way, of, I don't know, I don't know if you've come across this, but a while back I read the great sci-fi writer, Isaac Asimov's biography. It was his autobiography, I believe. And one of the things I came across in that was when Barbara Walters interviewed him and asked, Isaac, if you, if you were diagnosed with a terminal illness and you had only one year to live, what would you do? And he said, type faster. <laughs> he loved writing <laughs> Love so it. much. 
Yeah, well, well, this 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 is a great you know it'll you know, that's a, that's a technique that sometimes traumatic journeys you take you on. If you only got a year to live, or you only got six months to live, what would you do? And then they, of course the response is, well, do it. <laughs> yeah, if you already do it, if you're already doing it like Asimov, do it do, do it more. That's <laughs> great. I love that. I didn't heard that story. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation and, and I really enjoy our friendship. I'm, I'm so grateful to, to have this opportunity. And I know we didn't talk about it and we don't have time here, but I also really appreciate what you've done with the Pachamam Alliance and with Dream Change and all the good work that you're involved in. I'll make sure to list you know that in the show notes. People can learn about and get involved in you know some of the, the things that you do. You mentioned the, the writing course that you offer from time to time and things, but thank you so much for making time to share of your experience and your wisdom with me and with everybody listening. My pleasure, Brian. I really appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate the show. I appreciate you getting this message out there. So thank you. And uh, we, hey, come to come to Guatemala with me in January. I'm, I'm convinced we're going to do that trip. And then the shaman's going to be with me on, uh, on this coming Thursday. But yeah, I'd love to. Let's get together again. And thank you so much again for all you do. And it's a great pleasure to be on the show with you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.